Let me talk to you real candidly. This is totally off the cuff and um, I suppose dangerous. So if you're a prayer warrior for me, you can start right now. Uh, let me just talk to you real quickly about something that um, we never talk about um, when we're together and probably should. First of all, that's not smoke uh, right there. That's steam. And uh, that's from the coffee or the hot chocolate, wherever Susie's brewing out there. So uh, don't be concerned. Those fumes will not kill you. They might distract you because they smell good, but they won't hurt you. Okay. That's not what I want to talk about off the cuff. Um, the thing that I want to address quickly is um, the opportunity we had this morning to be distracted or discouraged or set aside from the focus of what we're doing through some kind of a mishap in the process of what is normal routine in our church family. So it's important for us to consider and to actually think about how we respond when something doesn't go right or the people who are caring for us and giving their lives as sacrifice in front of us to to facilitate us worshiping, make a mistake or cause some kind of confusion in what we're doing. And uh, I I was sitting as I was sitting there. Uh, following our singing time and uh, the way that ended. And I was trying to think of a passage that spoke directly to that kind of scenario. And it's one that's normal. It's, it's certainly not something that we enjoy. Uh, those who are involved in it from the front definitely don't enjoy it. Uh, but let me encourage you from Romans chapter 12, uh, beginning of verse number 9, Paul kind of gives a grocery list of the way we respond to each other in the body. Let, let's turn there. Romans chapter 12. And let's just look at this briefly because I think it's important There are things that we do as a church family that are under development. There are other things that we do as a church family or that we don't do as a church family out of principle. And uh, the things that are under development or are in process, um, those are the things that create for us the biggest opportunity to uh, respond in an unhelpful way or to be confused into thinking that this this actually is some kind of show. This is actually a performance, and the performance didn't live up to our standard. And so we, the audience, or the judges, get to sit in disgruntled disfavor on the performers who are in front of us. That's not what we're doing when we're together. We know that. We're together as a family, and these are family members who are helping us do what we do as we worship. So let's let's read this, and it's talking directly to us as a church family, and I hope this can be maybe a starting place for us being careful in how we respond when things don't go as planned or as smoothly as we certainly want them to go uh, in our worship times together. Let love be genuine, verse 9 says. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. What is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful or lazy in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. 
And if he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome or be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let me draw your attention back to one verse in particular. Um, Verse number 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Now, this is not speaking directly to mishaps in corporate worship, but this certainly is speaking to corporate gatherings. And we are blessed. Um, in, In fact, we probably don't appreciate how blessed we are as an American church to enjoy what we enjoy every week. And there can be with us kind of a routine where we get very comfortable and used to what we have, so much so that we become very critical of what we have. We love excellence. We want excellence. We want precision. We want the best possible opportunities for us to reflect in every component of our gatherings the goodness and the greatness of God. But we're also a gathering of sinful, weak, flawed, underdeveloped people. So let me just encourage you, whether it be right now and you view the preaching time as a performance, this is your time to judge how I'm doing in delivering to you or how how I'm doing in, in getting this across or whatever, or whether it's earlier in the singing time and the servants as they play their instruments and care for us, whatever the case, or whether it be how good Susie's hot chocolate is or how the resource center is set up or how the rooms look during ABF or the floor in the nursery, whatever the case, let's be careful that we, we live biblically with one another in, in the midst of imperfection. There's development, there's growth, patience is always called for. And I just want to encourage you, I want to encourage my own heart to respond rightly in worship to things not going as smoothly as we may design them to be or desire for them to be. So just an encouragement, not that um, I'm not aware that I might be the one who needs to hear this most. Um, I might be the one who's most concerned about these things or compelled to, to work hard at thinking rightly, but I thought I'd encourage you before we get started this morning. Last thing before we jump into our text, I want to I share with you, uh, we have a new resource available for you, featured resource. We haven't had one of these in a while. This one's unique because this is one that I'm involved with right now. It's why it's our featured resource. This little book called Scandalous, is, it's not really a book. It's, it's a collection of sermons from D.A. Carson on the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. And I just want to encourage you, I, you'd be reading along with me if you're picking up one of these. Uh, they're cheap and um, very valuable information here. Uh, compelling studies in the uh, passion of Christ and in the resurrection. And uh, these are available for you today at the hub. Be sure that you pick these up. And I think they'll feed our souls as we study this passion narrative at the end of Matthew's gospel. Okay, let's turn there to Matthew chapter 26. And let's give our attention to the text of Scripture. And uh, give our full focus here for the next several minutes. Let's pray together and uh, then we'll read and uh, then we'll study together. Father, thank you for what you're doing at Grace Church. Uh, There is much to be encouraged with as uh, we see one another developing in grace. And we have opportunity to turn back praise to you for the work that you're doing in our own hearts and our own lives, the way you're shaping and molding us. And then the experience of the encouragement of others being shaped and molded as well. I pray that you would help us as a church family to keep the main things the main things. That the gospel would be at the center of how we process even our gatherings together. That the gospel would be at the center of how we even receive the word through 
preaching and instruction. How we process the word and then fellowship with one another around the word as we gather in smaller groups throughout our week. I pray that the gospel would be at the center of our times of communication and and engaging with one another. That there would be truth and love communicated with each other. We desire for the gospel to be at the center, not so that in some selfish way we are the end or we're the, the beneficiaries, but, but so that your name would be glorified, that we would develop more and more and more and more into a people that is so distinct from our culture, so set apart in our, our affections for you, so overwhelmed with your grace and your power, and so compelled to love one another and to extend mercy and grace To the world around us. We ask that you would do this. So that the fame of your name. Would spread through this valley. That we would be one part. As one local expression of your body. Of carrying the good news of Christ. Effectively to our communities. This is far beyond what we could muster up. Or make happen on our own. This certainly is something we can't. Create an environment to accomplish. You through the power of your spirit. Must do this work. So we. We submit again to you right now as we're about to engage with the study of your word and ask you to realign our thoughts after your thoughts. Inform our conscience so that we're convicted where there is sin, whether it be active sin or sins of omission. Encourage our faith so that we might walk believing this week what we cannot see because we have been encouraged with one another. And set our course on a path of growth. Take us down another step of of progressing toward the righteousness that is ours in Christ being displayed in our daily lives. We desperately need help. We need help to receive and understand and to live your word. So grant us that help through the work of your spirit, we ask in the name of your son. Amen. Let's read together from Matthew chapter 26. Beginning in verse number 17, we'll pick up our narrative of the Passion Week and uh, read together verses 17 through 30, and then we'll come back and we'll study them together. Let's read together, okay? Verse number 17. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them. And they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, he was dipped his hand in, this, in the dish with me, will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for the man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. These are the words of God for our consideration this morning. And I trust that God will use them to shape and mold us to look more like His suffering servant, His Son, Jesus. Perhaps you've come this morning to our time of worship together doubtful or discouraged with the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty of God is a something of a theological jargon term at this point in the American, the Western church. The sovereignty of God is very simply the rulership of God. The, the, the domain of God over all that He has created. Perhaps you've come this morning mindless of the sovereignty of God. It's not that you're doubting it, knowing that this is what the Scriptures teach, but having a difficult time seeing it played out in your life or submitting to it as it's played out in your life, but you're just mindless of the sovereignty of God. You generally live out your theology that you are sovereign over your life. In fact, your very presence here this morning is your sovereign plan being accomplished. You have made plans to be here. That's why you're here this morning. Whatever the case, whether you be mindless of the sovereignty of God, or perhaps doubting the sovereignty of God, or championing the sovereignty of God, perhaps you're here this morning never being more aware than you are right now that you have a God who orchestrates the events of history, who works in the details of human life, who accomplishes His purposes without failure to the glory of of his name. Whatever the case, this narrative text, this record that Matthew provides for us in the week of the death of Christ, in the Passion Week, highlights the sovereignty of God in the centerpiece of human history. If ever there was a time to doubt whether or not God was on the throne reigning and accomplishing His purposes, it would be during this week. If ever there was a group of people who would doubt or be potentially doubtful of God's good sovereign plans in their life, it would be the disciples or even Christ. If ever there was a time where all the foundations seemed to be unsettled, it seems that it would be here. In this week, when activities are taking place that are so counterintuitive, when plans that have been been thought to have been made for some time are being shaken and expectations are being disappointed. And so in verse number 17, and really this is throughout the entire narrative account of the passion of Christ, but in particular in these verses, 17 through 30, we have put on display for us through the power of the Holy Spirit as he superintended Matthew's record, we have the sovereignty of God placed in front of us in the preparation for the Passion. Now, this is the Passover season. This is the Passover festival or feast. And so it is important for us to understand that God had plans in this Passover. And that jumps off the page of Scripture if we have an eye to see it. Everything that we read in these verses recounting the plans of God in this Passover speak to His sovereign control over all of the events of the center of human history. Let's, let's engage with, with 
desperation to see it. Let's ask God, even as we study it, to give us eyes to gaze on His providence. The providence of God is simply the outworking of His sovereignty. So maybe that's a theological term that's kind of just been thrown around without understanding. The sovereignty of God is His power, His authoritative power over the events of human history. The providence of God is the mechanism by which He accomplishes it. So the providence of God are the the events that carry on His sovereignty. So here in this text, we get to gaze on the providence of God in these functional details that are planned out, displaying His sovereignty in the crowning jewel of His plan, which is the crucifixion of His Son. This draws us back to Isaiah chapter 53, where we we're reminded that this is God's plan to crush His Son. This is God's intention to place upon His Son the sins of sinful people who will be called by His name and then to crush Him for the sins that He's never committed. Only then to reward those who have never lived in perfect obedience with the righteousness of His Son. Now in the context of Matthew chapter 26, perhaps you weren't here last week or you're new with us this morning. In the context of chapter 26, last week we've already seen the planning and the, the polarizing nature of this preparation for passion. We got to see Mary's extravagant love and devotion and affection for her Savior. Her understanding of the Messiah's person and work led her to do something that was outside of the cultural norms. And the hatred and the despising for the Messianic ministry and person of Christ led to the other polarizing extreme in the betrayal of Judas and in the wicked, murderous plans of the false leaders, religious leaders of Israel. Here we pick up this preparation for the crucifixion, for the passion of Christ in this Passover planning. Verse number 17 begins us with three distinct marks of the sovereignty of God in this Passover. We see the plans of God in Passover in three different ways as we study this. In verse number 17 down through verse number 19, we find God's well-planned Passover scenario. So, <clears throat> excuse me, even the, the scenario in, in which we find Jesus and the disciples is according to plan. So first we'll see the well-planned scenario. Secondly, we'll find in verse number 20 down through verse number 25, the well-planned Passover surrender. There's a, there's a pre-planned surrender involved in this Passover season. It's not outside of the sovereignty of God. And finally, we'll see, and most importantly, I believe, in verses 26 through 30, we'll see the well-planned Passover supremacy. There's something special about this Passover. There's something unique and supreme involved in this sovereign plan for this, the fourth Passover feast of the ministry of Christ. So let's begin in verse number 17 and let's let's review God's well-planned Passover scenario. Even while we look at the, the planning of God and the sovereignty of God, let's be reminded of the big theme that over over oversees all of these verses, all of this context. The cross of Jesus is the center of human history and therefore must be the center of our human existence. And preparation for that cross means recognizing who planned it. If we're going to rightly appreciate the cross of Christ as the center of human history and therefore the center of our human existence, it must be because we understand whose plans are at work in this passion 
of Jesus the Christ. Verse number 17 is not difficult at face value, though it has some built-in difficulties for us. Let's, let's see what those are. We see first God's well-planned Passover scenario. Verse number 17 tells us the day that sets the context for where we are in this week. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now, that seems relatively simple. And in fact, if you turn to Mark chapter 14 or to Luke chapter 22, you would find everything is copacetic. This is quite simple. This is the 14th day of the month of Nisan. This is the first day. This is when leaven would be removed. This is in preparation for the Passover feast. The challenge comes for us when we get to John's gospel account. Because in John's gospel account, there seems to be some big time confusion about what day of the week this is. Is this Thursday preparing for the Passover? So this Thursday afternoon, in which Jesus is communicating with the disciples about preparing for the the Passover feast. Or is this this Wednesday uh, is, 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 this, is this all unified? Do the disciples know the day that is to be held? And, and I'm confident that, yes, there obviously is harmony between the Gospels. But this is one of the most challenging harmonizations of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, with John, the fourth Gospel account. It would take us weeks to unpack all of the different remedies to the potential disagreement between John and the Synoptic Gospels. But let me give you just two basic remedies that are committed to the inerrancy and the inspiration of your scriptures. The first is a calendar remedy. This one you can find if you want to read about this. You can find this explained to you in the MacArthur Study Bible. Perhaps you have one of those. We had that as a featured resource, I don't know how long ago now, a month or so or two months ago. And perhaps you have that. If you go to the Gospel of John introductory material, you'll find an explanation that provides the calendar answer to this problem. Basically, that there are two different ways of viewing the calendar in the Jewish scheme. Those from the north viewed it one way. Those from the south viewed it another way. That is, those from Galilee viewed it one way. Those from the temple viewed it another way. So John's writing from the temple perspective. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are writing from the Galilean perspective, which would have been the way Jesus saw the calendar. Therefore, they're talking about the same day, just with a different view of the calendar. It's not that there's any difference in the day. This is still Thursday afternoon, no matter which way you look at it. It's just what date on the calendar is this Thursday afternoon. That's one remedy. And a viable one. And a well-documented one. Based upon historic evidence from Jewish historians of the time, though limited reference, is still based on reference from them that there was discrepancy in how the the Jews understood the calendar. The second option you could find outlined for you in the Gospel of John, mostly, in the ESV Study Bible, which I know many of you have, or perhaps in the Expositor's Bible Commentary, which some of you have as a whole Bible commentary, in the commentary on Matthew or John. And in that perspective, it's not so much that there's different calendars, it's just that we we're, we're, we're not clear enough on what John is trying to communicate. So there's an exegetical explanation presented, which both harmonizes the date and the day. So basically, that view, which I am so up to my eyes in these views and understanding them, I lean only 51% of the way toward that view, not knowing which view to take. I know that there's harmony, that there is no 
There's no discrediting of the text. Not that John was confused or that Matthew, Mark, and Luke and Jesus were confused. It's we're confused. And these both provide alternatives for us to have the, the apostles who are writing to us agree and for our scriptures to be held together. Either way, whether it is a calendar issue or whether it is an exegetical understanding of John issue, either way, the remedy must come back to this being Thursday afternoon. This is Thursday afternoon. And when it says that when evening comes, that's Thursday evening. That is the beginning of Friday. Friday carrying from Thursday evening to Friday evening. Jesus will be killed on the day of the Passover at three in the afternoon. That is Friday, which begins on Thursday at sundown. What the dates of those days are is really an issue for for debate. This sets the context for us very simply because it, it launches us into all the other details that we're going to find here. If I just lost you, let me bring you back by telling you this is Thursday, getting us ready for the Passover. So the unleavened bread or the day of unleavened bread comes from Exodus chapter 12. And in Exodus chapter 12, unfortunately, we're not as familiar with our Old Testament as we should be. In Exodus chapter 12, we have the outline for the the nation of Israel getting ready to leave Egypt. And in getting ready to leave Egypt, they need to have unleavened bread, flatbread prepared. And they need to kill a lamb. And they need to cook that lamb. And they will eat that lamb. And they'll take the blood of that lamb and they'll spread it across their doorpost with a hyssop. And that night, the angel of death will come from God's throne room and will wipe out all of the firstborn of the land of Egypt in every home that is not covered with the blood of that lamb as outlined in Exodus chapter 12 will lose their firstborn son. But the angel will pass over every house that has the blood on the doorpost. And from that moment forward, there would be a memorial to the grace of God and the plan of God and the mercy of God in passing over those who had sacrificed a lamb, shed blood for a covering over their home. It would be known as the Passover feast. And mixed with the Passover feast would be the, the feast of unleavened bread, which was, which was going along with this week-long festivity all in remembrance of God's deliverance from Israel, all depicting and reminding the nation of Israel that God had been gracious to them and had brought them out of slavery by His power and might. So don't lose the impact because of your cultural disconnection as a Gentile from what is being said when it says in verse 17, now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where we have us prepare for you to eat the Passover. Jesus and the disciples are preparing to have a lamb slaughtered at the temple for its throat to be slit and for it to bleed out and within two hours to be roasted and, and eaten in commemoration of the passing over of the death angel as the final plague in Egypt before God rescued the nation of Israel. God has well planned Passover scenario here in verses number 17 through 19. 
The disciples are asking an innocent question. They're Jewish people. They don't need any of this information. They don't have to wonder what the, the day of unleavened bread is. And they certainly don't miss the impact of what the Passover is. What they want to know is, hey, Jesus, where are we going to eat the Passover meal? And what we find in Jesus' response is that a sovereign God is orchestrating even the smallest details. Christ says, go find a certain man. The Gospels tell us it's the guy with the pitcher of water. I mean, There's just not a lot of definitive information given here. The disciples are going to go find this guy who's got this pitcher of water. And they're going to say to the guy, it's, it's the time for the Lord to come to your house, for Christ to come to your house, for Jesus and the disciples to eat in your home for the Passover meal. And he's going to know what to do. Why? Because all of this has been planned by a sovereign, powerful, intimately involved God of the universe. Notice the inference from Jesus in verse number 18. Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, now notice these words, my time is at hand. Brothers and sisters in Christ, every time we see my time or the time is at hand, let it be a road marker for us to worship the sovereign plans of God. Jesus says, tell him that the time is now. What time? The time has been prepared. By whom? By God. From how long ago? From eternity past. This is the time that has been set out. This is the time of Christ's Passover feast. And this one will be unique. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them. And they prepared the Passover. Matthew's always understated. Making the, the, the principle or the theme or the truth, the theology of what's here, jump out with his understated description. He doesn't tell us all the details. He doesn't tell us about the interchange. He doesn't tell us that the disciples had to go get a lamb and go take it to the temple. He didn't tell us which of the priests slit the throat of the lamb. He didn't tell us which of the disciples were there. He doesn't tell us how they cooked or where they cooked the meal. He doesn't tell us anything. He just says they did what they were supposed to do and it all was accomplished according to plan. Now this might seem so basic to us, but... The details of this scenario in this week are all sovereignly orchestrated by God. Nothing is by chance. The disciples didn't come back and say, you can't believe the luck we had. Found this guy with a water pitcher. Man, we were rubbing our rabbit's foot. Boom, it happened. No, there's none of that. Why? Because Christ says with the sovereign authority of heaven, this is what will happen, and it happens. These are real human beings making real conscious decisions, engaging with real choices, and they are all under the umbrella of the sovereign plan of God down to the smallest detail. This is the right house. This is the right upper room. This is the right time. This is the right lamb. This is the right setting. This is it. The sovereignty of God on display. The cross of Jesus is at the center of human history and therefore must be the center of our human existence and preparing for that cross means us appreciating freshly who was behind these plans. Look at what we find secondly in verses number 20 down through 25. We find that God not only well, has a well-planned Passover scenario but a well-planned Passover surrender I'm, I'm shocked by the irony of what we read here. And it's so familiar to me that I'm, I'm constantly coming back and rereading just to let it sink in again. Jesus now in the evening, this is the beginning of Friday, 
This is Thursday night. Reclined at the table with the twelve, they would lay down, rest there, resting on one arm. This is feet to head, feet to head, eating. Uh, this, this whole scene is going to have problems built into it for me. Okay? I don't know about you, but this whole picture of eating is very disturbing. They're laying down together, feet to head, feet to head. That's why washing the feet was so important. Amen? Thank you. So they're laying down, they're reclining at the table. There's no chairs, they're laying down and they're eating together. And notice what takes place. Jesus shocks them all. Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. This is a definitive statement of fact. I will be betrayed. Sovereign God of the universe in human flesh declares this will happen. I will be betrayed. This is a sovereignly orchestrated surrender of Jesus' will. Now we're going to see his will surrender in a powerful way in the Garden of Gethsemane. But here we find our first Hint of surrender in the passion. Jesus telling them that he will be betrayed. Of course, the disciples are shocked and sorrowful and they they're all wondering who it will be. Interestingly enough, not long after this, they're talking about who's going to be the greatest. These are not the most bright group of guys. We can empathize with them. A lot of fog in their minds, no pun intended, for what is taking place. But they're concerned. Is it going to be me? Is it going to be me? Is it going to be me? And Jesus says to him in verse number 23, and this is important for you to understand. He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Now, you might think of that as an exclusive designation. In other words, you might think that there's a dish in front of Jesus and that he and Judas are laying near each other. And so he and Judas are sharing the dish, kind of like the bowl of salsa at the restaurant. You get a bunch of them on the table and you and the person across from you, you're the ones dipping into that bowl with a chip, not with your hands, please. Don't go back in for more. That's double dipping. That's not the picture here. There's a roasted lamb being eaten. And there would be one big bowl of extras, of side dish, of fruit puree with herbs mixed in it. And they would use it with bread to sop it up with bread with their hands to season and to go along with their meal. What Jesus says here is the one who will betray me is a friend. This is not specific. It wasn't as if the disciples were like, oh, wow, Judas is sharing the bowl with him. It's got to be Judas. That's why it's not a shock when Judas adds his voice in after hearing that statement from Jesus. Likely it had gone around the table. It was just Judas's turn. And in the depths of his hypocrisy, he voices his question as well. It's going to be me. Jesus says, you've said it was. You've already identified yourself by asking. This would all in some ways be lost on the disciples as the other narrative accounts in the synoptics explain to us. But notice here that Jesus reveals that an immediate friend and fellow worker, a disciple, will be his betrayer. This is sovereign authority on display. This is encouragement for us this morning. We must appreciate the gospel freshly with the cross at the center of human history and at the center of our existence. We are nothing without the cross. The cross is everything to us, but we will never appreciate the cross appropriately. Unless we see clearly again who planned it. Whose sovereign will is at work here? God's well-planned Passover surrender is in full swing The friends of Jesus 
The ones communing with him at the table, dipping their hands in the bowl with him, one of them will betray him. Now, notice what we find in verse number 24. Jesus now goes on to explain the theological grid through which the disciples would have to see his betrayal. Listen to the sovereignty of God as it runs headlong into the responsibility of the human. Son of man goes as it is written of him. You you hear that? This whole betrayal thing is according to the prophecies of the Old Testament. Son of man goes, that is in betrayal, he goes as it is written of him. But... Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for him if he had not been born. What we find here in this sovereignty of God and the display of the sovereign working in the details and the providence of the week of the Passion and in the Passover feast and the celebration of the Passover feast, we find that this sovereignty of God in no way alleviates or relieves the pressure of pain and guilt from sin. Judas betrays Christ because he is wicked in his heart. He betrays Christ, sells him for 30 pieces of silver, relays him to those who would offer him up to Romans who would crucify him on a tree, all because of the wickedness of their heart. Their guilt is all their own. And yet, even these wicked, sinful choices are not outside the bounds of the sovereign plans of God. Listen to this quote from one commentator who said the divine necessity for the sacrifice of the Son of Man, grounded in the Word of God, that is to fulfill what is written, does not excuse or mitigate the crime of a betrayal. Nor is this an instance of divine overruling after the fact. Instead, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are both involved in Judas's treason. The one affecting salvation And bringing redemptive history to its fulfillment. The other, answering the promptings of an evil heart. The one results in salvation from sin for the Messiah's people. The other, in personal and eternal ruin. That is for Judas. Brothers and sisters, if you have always wanted to have either human responsibility or sovereign authority of God. Please understand that your Bible teaches you that they go together. You say, I can't get my mind around it. Welcome to the party. We worship and we hold these two tensions out at their full tension strength. God is sovereign over every detail of the Passion Week and He's over every detail of your life. And yet, He is never the author of sin. He is never held accountable for the sins of human beings. And even those choices that are made in wickedness still in the mystery of God's providence fall under His sovereign authority. Son of Man goes because it's been written that He would go. But the one who takes Him there, the betrayer, woe to that man because His sin will bring upon Him the wrath of God. God's sovereignty is put on display in the scenario and in the surrender of Christ. Judas finishes verse 25, Is it I? You have said so. The life of Christ was lived according to the plan of God. And the death of Christ was accomplished according to the plan of God. The surrender of Christ's life was in no way outside of God's sovereign control and providential work. 
If the disciples were tempted to think this is out of control, they were misunderstanding and misinterpreting their circumstances. If we're to rightly appreciate the cross as the center of human history, it'll be because we are freshly aware of who planned it. And this this preparation for the cross is planned in every detail. Finally, we culminate with God's well-planned Passover supremacy. Verses 26 through 30. Highlight for us the supreme nature of this Passover. Because this Passover was not just like any other Passover. This was not just some Jewish feast in the upper room where the disciples, his friends and spiritual family were enjoying the lamb and and eating together and drinking together. Jesus turns this to highlight what is actually taking place in the passion. What is taking place in the crucifixion of Jesus. And he does so with the institution of the Lord's Supper. Verse 26, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body and took a cup. And when he given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. God's well-planned supremacy is found here in the person of his son. Jesus turns what was the Passover feast looking back to the faithfulness of God and the mercy and grace of God and preserving life and rescuing the nation of Israel. He now turns and moves in, in, in forward glancing and in, in looking to the future, which would be the immediate future, to what would now be commemorated under the new covenant people of God. That is those who are the recipients of the full work of the Lamb of God. No longer would the Passover be remembered merely to point to a, a, an animal lamb killed for a temporary covering to provide temporary grace and mercy from God. But now there would be the remembrance of all who are Christ to the sacrifice of a perfect lamb slain once and for all. To cover sins forever and for all of the sins of the people of God. This is a fascinating section and it is again so understated by Matthew. There's just not a lot of details here. Let this be clear. No one at the table was confused that this was actually the body of Christ. They were looking at him. So if you've been raised with an understanding of a fancy word, transubstantiation, which means that when we take communion together, when we eat the bread, it actually becomes the body of Christ, like flesh of Christ. Because of this passage, understand that that would have been, that would have been absolutely confusing to the people there. We know that Jesus is saying, this is to be the, the object that causes you to remember my body. This drink of wine is to be the, the cause of remembering my blood. This is my body. This is my blood. These are the representations of my body, my blood for you. And this is the mark of a new covenant. You see, Israel had long been promised that there would be a day when God would remove their stony hearts of unbelief and would give them stones or, or hearts rather of flesh, that there would be a day when they would have the spirit's presence with them, that they would walk in obedience and long for the word and love God. 
This was their anticipation, and now it was coming to fruition. And the supremacy of Jesus Christ is, is, is rising up through this moment of Passover. No longer will the people of God take the bread and the cup and merely remember the grace of God in rescuing Israel. But now there will be a new understanding in the new covenant. Even the preparation for the passion of Christ should rush us into worship of our Savior. His glorious substitution establishes His supremacy. What the disciples had interpreted by this meal together with Jesus was now being reinterpreted by Jesus, pointing with the ultimate picture of what was even being done at the Passover. Even that that little lamb that was slain so that the death angel would pass over, looked with anticipation to the day when a perfect lamb would be slain, when covering would be made that would never go away, when death would be done away with forever for those who were under the covenant. Now it is here. This is the sovereign supremacy of God on display in the person and the work of Christ. We should treasure Him when we read these accounts. We should be overwhelmed freshly. I need to be overwhelmed freshly with the sovereign work of God and the details in preparation for the passion of Christ because it is in those details and in whose plan is being carried out that I find my gaze centered on Christ, full of worship and affections for Him. What a precious sacrifice this is. Now, at this point in our time and study, usually we would turn to say, now, what, how do we handle this text? What do we do with this portion of God's word? How do we rightly apply this and obey this? I actually want to read the Bible with you as our closing application. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9. I want to read together, focus our attention, because the author of Hebrews cares for us, serves us, As we think about this Passover feast, the last Passover in the upper room, the scenario, the surrender, the supremacy, all under the sovereign plan of God, is exposed in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse number 11. Really, we could read, if we had the time, all of Hebrews, but we certainly won't do that this morning. Verse number 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of the heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death. Since it is not in the force, it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. 
For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God made or that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into the heavens itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, Would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. Note this, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ is offered for all time, a single sacrifice for sin, for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Finished. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time Those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After these days, declares the Lord, I put my law, my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering of sin. Now, brothers and sisters, with all of those great truths about the the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. The supremacy of the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. We're left with a question of how then does that supreme sacrifice affect us as God's people? Isn't that just dry theology? Isn't that just the beginning of our Christian life? Does that really have anything to do with who I am this week? 
Does this narrative of the sovereign details in the scenario, the surrender and the supremacy of Christ, does it have anything to do with us? Verse number 19 is the answer. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. How does the sovereign work of God come to bear on our lives this week in, this, in, in the scenario of the preparation for Christ's death, in the surrender of Christ for His death, and in the supremacy of the celebration of the Passover in that upper room? As the new covenant is inaugurated in remembrance with bread and wine. All of those realities and the fullness of the sacrifice of Christ and his supremacy comes to bear on us in these few verses. First, we are commanded to draw near. To draw near in faith. Verse number 22, with, with our hearts in full assurance of faith. Have confidence, brothers and sisters. Draw near to God this week because of the sovereign supremacy of His Son whose sacrifice is in your place if you have turned from your sin and embraced Him by faith. Draw near. Secondly, verse 23 commands us to hold fast to the confession. Don't let go. Run close to the throne room because you have access through Christ and hold on to the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of the gospel. Hold fast to the confession of our hope. Don't waver. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. The supremacy of God and the sacrifice of his son is the mark of his faithfulness to his word. That doesn't change for us this week. And finally, consider. Draw near. Hold fast. Consider how. Consider how to what? Consider how to help one another hold fast and draw near. Consider how to prompt or prod one another toward love and good works. Meeting together. Encouraging one another. And even more as you anticipate His coming. You see, this morning, the cross of Jesus is at the center of human history. The, the question is, will it be at the center of our human existence? And it will not be valued as it should be valued unless we recognize clearly whose plans are being accomplished in the passion of Christ. May we be radical worshipers of Christ because He is the once for all sacrifice planned from the foundation of the world to accomplish His supremacy and the glory of God in rescuing sinful people who come surrendered, turning away from their sin and believing what they cannot see. That righteousness is available to them in Christ. 
And that forgiveness is available to them in Christ. Culminating in life through His resurrection power. This is our life, brothers and sisters. This is who we are as Christians. If this seems foreign or distant or historical, let us be reminded and refreshed. If we're here gathering under the name of Christianity, but know nothing of this powerful work of God, the gospel of Christ that changes us from the inside out, repent, cry out for mercy for eyes to see the glory of Christ. He alone is supreme and worthy of our affections and our devotion. Let's give him all of our all of our being. He's worthy of every last moment of our lives. It's a reasonable sacrifice in spiritual worship. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for bringing us to this to this moment in the life of Christ and in this moment in human history. Now, you brought us here now intentionally. These are the weeks when we are to study this and this is what you've ordained for us and we joyfully submit under your sovereign plans for us even as we study your sovereign plan for your son. Father, help us to value him as he should be valued. Help us to treasure him as he should be treasured. Bring us back to not being in wonder that an alabaster container was broken and that a year's worth of salary was poured out on his head. Help us to resonate with the man who sold everything he owned to buy the field because of the treasure that he knew was buried in the field. Help there to be in us a recognition that radical is reasonable when we recognize the supremacy of your son. May our culture not inform us, but the truth of your word. Change us, Father. Help us to be a people distinct for you, peculiar for you, so that your glory spreads through this valley. May our equipping time here at the theater extend now into our ministry, both to one another and to many who do not know you. To the next generation that does not know you, who we interact with on a daily basis. To our neighbors, to our family members. May the gospel be on the tip of our tongue because it is the tip of our worship in the supremacy of your son. Thank you for all that you're doing in our hearts. Thank you for encouraging us even again this morning. It's been an answer to prayer. You have helped us. We give you praise and look to you for strength to press on in our growth in Christ's likeness. We long to see him that we might be like him. And give all glory and praise to his worthy, supreme name. So we offer up our gratitude and we, we desire your help. Coming to you in the name and the work of your supreme son, Jesus, the Messiah, our Lord, we pray. Amen.